John's gospel begins with the, the, beautiful, the beautiful note. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But the light shines in the darkness. The light doesn't shine in the light. It shines in the darkness. Peter tells us that that we are in a a dark place. And, And he tells us that there is a light for us to pay attention to in that dark place. And the dark place is this world. It's brokenness. It's rebellion. It's weakness. And the light in first Peter in that passage that I'm thinking of is God's prophetic word. For me, uh, and I don't want to make this about me, but, but I do, I do want to just briefly touch on a, a personal reality for me. Um, I don't know why, but God chose me to, um, to have a proclivity to doubt and to question that is pronounced. Um, I noticed it in an excessively paralyzing way from the time I was eight, eight years old until the time I was converted at the age of 20, which was miraculous in, its free, in it, the freedom I received from some crippling fears. But soon after my conversion, um, I went through a significantly difficult time with doubt. Um, My brain asked me questions that I could not answer and I couldn't even keep up with. Uh, Fundamental questions I had never asked about Jesus as a uh, church-going kid. Questions about things I had presumed were true my whole life as a church-going kid. But suddenly, once Jesus really became real to me, in my conversion, in a way he had never become real, I felt opposed in ways I'd never been opposed before. And I, I heard not literal voices, but I heard thought voices in my head that were very, very powerful. They were like stabbing knives. How do you know he's really the son of God? How do you know he's really the son of God? What about Islam? What about Buddha? What about atheism? It was really painful. I felt that the person I had been given as a gift in a way I'd never experienced before, my Lord, was being stolen away from me through this painful proclivity to doubt. And I think there are different reasons and and aspects to the doubt issue in me, but it was so paralyzing. I I was very depressed. Um, in this particular season in college. And I began to look in the scriptures. In particular, I I began to look in the Old Testament for the answer to who Jesus was because because I I came to the, the conviction or belief that if this Old Testament, if this first half of the Bible or about two thirds of the Bible that was around hundreds of years before Christ. If I could see him there, if I could see him in dramatic and specific and bold ways, if I could see the, the, the picture of Christ being painted by these prophets 
who said they were really from God, talking about what God wanted them to talk about, predicting what God wanted them to predict, then, then I had something that was more objective, that was more solid than just my own feelings. I had objective evidence that there was something miraculous about this book. And that, that God was who he said he was. The God who knows the end from the beginning. The God who says, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I am God and there is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. If, if that's true, then it should show up here. It should show up here. If he's really the God who knows the end from the beginning, then it should show up here. This Bible should be accountable. And what I found through prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, was he was who he said he was. That he was faithful. That he really did say what would happen and did bring it to pass. And, and slowly, day after day, week after week, month after month, as I sunk my teeth into prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, I just... I couldn't deny that there was a miracle going on in these pages. I couldn't deny it. That the, the people who today, their culture, their descendants, who, who hold the Old Testament dear, the, the Jewish people, reject Jesus, but affirm that the Old Testament is their book, that their prophets wrote, and that that book is full of Jesus Christ. Even though they don't embrace that, it's full of Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians didn't go back and write that in. You see what I'm saying? God tells us the end from the beginning so that we would know that he's God. And so that we would be saved. And so that in a dark place, he tells us the end from the beginning so that in a dark place, the darkness of our doubts, the darkness of our brokenness, the darkness of our temptations, the darkness of our depression, we might have a light that shines and gives us hope. And so that's why we've been in this series called The Promised One. I want, by God's grace, to give you extra strength. By his grace, not that I could do it. I want you to give you more a, a, a greater level of light in your toolbox to run to because doubts come, temptations come, discouragements come. It's gonna be our, our lot until we see him face to face. And we've considered many of the prophecies in the last two meetings that tell us about the Messiah, our need for him, the, his role last week as priest and king, hints of his suffering, his divine nature, even where last week we ended with where he would be born, as we've been doing the last two Sundays. And today, I want to continue to delve into this prophetic word, this light shining in a dark place. Because I'm hoping today that by God's grace, 
we will see something, and I wrote this to you in an email last night, we will see something astonishing. I, I hope that by God's grace, you, at least some of you will walk away really rattled by what we're gonna read today. Be, because for me, and, and, and others say this, other preachers I've heard will say uh, that this is one of the most, if not the most astonishing prophecy in the Bible. The most astonishing prophecy in the Bible. So listen though, it, if you want to have, um, if you want to be positioned somewhat to be astonished today, I, I have to ask you to try to hang in there. If you're a little bit tired, you might need to pinch yourself on the neck. You might need to ask your, your neighbor, your relative, just to slap you or, or pull your hair a little bit. You're going to have to stay awake. And you're also going to have to do a little bit, uh, just a tiny bit of math. Math is in the Bible. It really is. I don't know if I told this last week, so forgive me for redundancy, but I, I talked Marie and John through this this week. I think it was this week or last week. And I think John said, I thought we were doing the Bible, not math. And today the Bible has math in it. I can't help it. That's what God asked Daniel to do. He asked him to do some math. But hopefully, if you, if you hang in there, my hope is that you'll, you'll be astonished a little bit. Well, I, I hope you'll be astonished a lot. Um, but man, I need help so much because I, I'm afraid I'm going to drive you guys off a cliff. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to not make this clear enough. I have all kinds of, my fears are irrelevant. I need God's help and you need God's help. So let's pray to him right now, okay? Lord, would you please, through your Holy Spirit, work today. Would you please give us the gift of awe? Lord, I want to be awed. I want your people to be awed at you. We want you to be glorified. You are the God who declares the end from the beginning and who tells us beforehand what is to come and then brings it to pass. And I pray that that would strengthen your people today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. And also welcome to those of you who are online with us. I know I, I don't know all the folks who are online, but I just want to say thank you guys for investing this morning as well. The book we're in this morning is going to be, and I'm going to have plenty of scriptures for you guys today up here. Um, it's going to be Daniel 9. You can turn there if you want to, but we will be following along on the screens. Daniel 9. This prophecy, this uh, allegedly, arguably most astonishing prophecy in the Bible comes from Daniel 9, his ninth chapter. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about his timeline. So if we fast forward a few slides, Brando, we'll get to a slide. You have my slides, right? There it is. And hey, Brando, you might notice today, you should see do you, on your computer, do you see that those slides are numbered? Okay, so I've got them numbered with you so that I can keep track of them because, um, so that's slide eight, right? Okay, so this is a little timeline of the relevant, couple of relevant dates for Daniel right now. Daniel is um, a young man who was, um, who was around, who was alive during the time of this thing called the Babylonian Empire. And without going into a lot of history, I just want to let you know that uh, you might remember Israel broke into two sides, kind of north and south, um, around maybe 9, 20, 800 something. I'm, I'm not going to, I can't get that right perfectly. But right after Solomon ended his reign, his son, they, they went to civil war. So there are two parts of Israel. There's north and south. They weren't friends anymore. They were two different kingdoms. 
One nation of God's people, but they broke up into two, north and south. About 722, the northern kingdom gets pulled away by Assyria, called the 10 tribes of Israel, sometimes called the lost 10 tribes. And they were no more. They were dispersed into the, God knows where all they, they all are, but they were dispersed into the surrounding nations by Assyria. Now, Judah's left. It's called the southern kingdom, tribe of Judah, some Benjamites, some Levites in there. It's the southern kingdom of Judah. So when we call, talk about Israel today, we're talking about Judah, and that was the, 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 the people that Jesus was born into and walked around into, Judah. So Daniel lived during the time when uh, the northern kingdom had been taken away, and it was just Judah that was left. And after Assyria conquered uh, the northern kingdom, this new kingdom came Babylon, the Babylonian empire. And they took over Judah and the surrounding nations, the Babylonian empire. You guys with me so far? You awake? Do you need a pinch? Okay, boy, if you need a pinch right now, it's going to get even worse. <laughs> so, so listen, but stay with me. Stay with me, please. It's worth it. Damien, it's worth it. <laughs> well, We'll get, we'll meet on Tuesday and we'll, we'll go over this whole thing again for four hours. So, just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you, but all right. So, so 609, the Babylonian empire conquers the Middle East, including Israel or what's now Judah. Okay. So about, about uh, four years later in 605, this young man, Daniel is brought to Babylon from Judah to serve the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar at that point. Daniel goes to Babylon. He is a complete complete uh, grade A student. He is the cream of the crop. He's brilliant. He's gifted. He's dedicated. He's a man of integrity and he's very dedicated to the Lord. And the king is like, that guy, I want him as my advisor. So the king makes him a principal advisor in his kingdom. Daniel has a lot of authority and power, 605 BC. By 539, by 539, about 70 years after that conquest in 609, Babylon gets conquered by another empire, the Persians. So Babylon gets taken out by the Persians. Okay, so they got a new king now, this guy Cyrus. And it's a whole other amazing story about how God named Cyrus a century or so before in Isaiah and says he's gonna bring this guy Cyrus. But anyway, you just need to know that Daniel has lived through Babylon's capture of Judah and their exile. And now he's in this new kingdom of, of, of the Persians, okay? Living in the same place, as he was before, he's still in the area of Babylon, but now he's ruled by a new guy, Cyrus, and his viceroys, his other little sub-kings, okay? So this all starts around 609, and then 70 years, Babylon rules the Jews and exiles them to Babylon, and during that time, things are bad for the Jewish people. They're exiled to another, to all these different kingdoms, in particular Babylon, temples destroyed, Jerusalem's destroyed, it's all laid waste. God promised he would do all this awful stuff because he's just, and the, the Israelites broke his covenant big time. Child sacrifice, idolatry, uh, burning their kids in the fires to demon gods, uh, disobeying his covenant, uh, murder, oppression, injustice, up and down, bribery, thieves, corrupt governments, corrupt people. And God said, enough. And he sent them into exile. So, but 70 years into this stay, we're at 539, the bottom of that slide. That's when Daniel's going to say, Daniel's going to talk today in, in, in the Bible about the things he's going to talk about. This happened in 539. This empire is conquered by Persia. And Daniel knows from another prophet named Jeremiah, who was working long before him, 
that God made a promise. Not only would he exile Judah, but God made a promise in Jeremiah that he would bring Judah back to the promised land. And God made a very specific promise. He said, 70 years, Babylon will rule. And then after 70 years ends, I'm gonna bring my people back. Daniel was paying attention to his Bible. And he knew Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, where the Lord promised, and we should have that slide, slide nine, this whole land, he's speaking of Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations, the nations around Judah, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, it's another name for them, for their iniquity declares the Lord. Okay, he knew that, 70 years. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah and he says, oh, 70 years, it's almost over. I better get ready. And Jeremiah 20, he knows another scripture, Jeremiah 29, 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. God speaking to his people, Israel, Judah. I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. I'm gonna send you away for 70 years and then God says, I just love that. I will come to you. Well, today in this passage, God is going to come. He's gonna start that process. He's gonna come starting with this man, Daniel, so that he can begin the process of bringing them back to this place. So Daniel knows that 70 years, he is reading his Bible <laughs> We, we would want to be really careful about this today, but he's also watching the clock and he says, oh my gosh, 70 years, it's almost over. It's almost over. Just like the Lord has promised. So Daniel's paying close attention to the word. He knows the time has come. He's anxious for God to fulfill his promise just as he said he would in 70 years to return Judah back to their land. And this is where we find him at the start of chapter nine. And we're going to start just a little bit into chapter nine in the middle of verse one or two here. I, Daniel, observed in the books, that means the scriptures, the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations, namely 70 years. Okay? So notice Daniel's thoughts about scripture. He believes they're true. He doesn't just believe they're true. He is staking his hope on their truth. He's not just staking their hope on their truth. He's staking their hope, his hope on their specific promise. 70 years of desolation was God's decree. And after 70 years, the, de the desolation would end and God would bring them back. Daniel is taking that seriously. So, now I want to talk a little about, this is going to be important as we move forward. Why 70 years? Why did God choose 70 years of exile for the Jewish people? This is going to be important. And here's a big part of it. Israel had ignored God's commands for centuries. Idolatry, oppression, we talked about that, child sacrifice. And among those commands was a special law called the law of the Sabbath year. And that was a law that said that every seventh year, the whole land, that's where the Jewish people got their food and their sustenance, the whole land was to have a rest year. No crops to be grown that seventh year for a whole year. 
A year of rest for the land, no crops to be grown. This seventh year, every seventh year Sabbath for the land was a way for Israel to show that they trusted God to provide for them. He would bless them in the six years so much that they would have plenty for the seventh year. But they didn't believe God about that seventh year. So they farmed, they grew their crops. They didn't trust God. So among the many, many other awful sins they were committing was this more passive sin of just, I'm just gonna keep my business going, grow my crops. I know God says, trust him, give this a rest. I'm not gonna do that. So God, when he judges Judah, he does this very interesting thing. He chooses 70 years. And he says in several places that this is a year of punishment for every Sabbath year they ignored. Can anybody do the math on that? So if he punishes them for 70 years because of every seventh year they ignore, how many years did they ignore God's Sabbath commands? Somebody got over here. What was it? Well, no, 70 years, almost, Ken. You're, you're moving ahead of me, brother. I know where you're going. 70 years of, of disciplined years for, for ignoring a Sabbath every seventh year. 490. 490 years of, of, of years they ignored that seventh year. Okay? That's going to be important in, in a few moments. First, First Chronicles 36 21, God is doing this, he says, to fulfill, I don't have a slide for this one, Brando, but you can keep that one right there, that's perfect. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and he says this, this is about the punishment, until the land has enjoyed its Sabbath, all the days it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And God had told them in Leviticus, if you disobey me and you ignore this Sabbath rule, I'm gonna kick you out of the land and let the land get its rest. God cares about the environment. I mean, there were real issues of the land resting. It's, if you're into farming and agriculture, you understand you can wipe land out by refusing to give it the rest it needs. It needs to get its nutrients back. It needs to get the soil replenished. But more than that, it was an issue of trust. It was an issue of trust. Will you trust me, God says, by letting the land rest. So now the 70 years of punishment is coming to an end. Babylon's finished her 70 years of domination. They've been kicked out. Daniel's got his eyes on the word. He's taken it really seriously. And he begins to pray. This is really interesting. Daniel's not like, woohoo, packing my bags. We're going back to Judah. He's not like, I claim this promise in the name of the Lord. Name it, claim it. It's in the Bible. Now, he could do that because this is actually a promise that's actually in the Bible. It's not for jet planes. It's not for McMansions. It's not for perfect health and wealth. It's actually in the Bible. And when you get a promise in the Bible that's a real promise to you, you can claim it. But Daniel's not like this. He's not got this triumphant attitude. He's broken. It's been awful. His, his nation is completely wiped out. I mean, God killed through Babylon. God decimated Judah. A lot of people died. He crushed those people just as he said he would. He disciplined them in his anger. They had spurned and rebelled and dismissed and despised God. And God sent them prophet after prophet saying, repent, 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 repent. I'm serious. 
And they just got harder and harder and harder. And then God said, okay, that's enough. And he let it fall hard on them. So Daniel's not like, woohoo, punishment's over. I mean, I know some of you guys who are parents are like, quiet time, you know, for your kid. And your kid's like, uh, okay. And then when the quiet times were like, yippee. And you're like, why can't you care about why you had the quiet time? Well, in a much more grave, sobering way, Daniel cares about why he had the quiet time. He cares. And so when he goes to God and he hears 70 years is coming, he doesn't go in like, yay, pack my bags. He goes humble. He is broken. And he prays. He asks God humbly, please. Well, let's just read what he does. Let's just read his heart. So I gave attention, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Now Daniel is talking in there about Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, 31. He, he's probably talking about some other things, but in, in those chapters, the end of Deuteronomy, the last few chapters, you will see some of the most amazing promises from God to his people if they will obey. And you will see some of the most frightening curses promised if they reject and rebel him. It is not seeker-friendly stuff. God talks about pursuing them to the end until he slays them through other nations. God talks about, well, it's, it's really, really sobering stuff. But this happened to Judah because they rebelled and they wouldn't obey. And David says, thus he has confirmed his words. Or Daniel says, thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us 
to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. You know, I don't know what coronavirus is. Like, I don't know God's mind about it. But I do know that he brings the light and the darkness. I do know that he brings the blessing and the calamity. That's paraphrasing, but pretty close to exactly what he says in Isaiah. And I do know that I never hear anyone. I mean, of course, it's a joke. Like, for me to even raise the point, like, we would be shocked to ever hear anybody in the media like that's not a specific religious person say, what if God's bringing this upon us because we've despised him? Like, it's not, even, it's not the closest thing to a consideration anywhere, CNN or Fox. I mean, it's just, it doesn't matter. You choose the left or the right. Nobody's asking that question. I'm not saying I know the answer to the question. I'm not telling you coronavirus is God's specific judgment, this, blah, 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 blah. I'm just saying nobody's even asking the question. I mean, and if I ask, the, if pastors ask the question, you probably get in trouble pretty soon, you know? John Piper asked the question a couple years ago. He put something on YouTube. They took it off. YouTube took it off. They're like, oh, this is shameful. Can't do this. But for, for Daniel... He saw his nation be told by the prophets, I'm gonna, God is gonna bring judgments on you if you don't turn. And then God starts bringing judgments on them. They knew it and they didn't, they didn't turn. They knew it, they'd heard from God's prophets and they didn't turn. Anyway, verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. This guy is not faking. He is not pretending and God hears it like a like a betrayed lover, God hears his spouse saying, I am so sorry. 
Can't you hear that in Jeremiah's voice or Daniel's voice? Like a betrayed spouse, God is hearing these words of his spouse. I am so sorry for what I have done. And God is moved. God is moved. And something amazing happens. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at first, he's talking about another chapter we're not gonna go into earlier in Daniel. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, at the beginning, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Like what must that meant to Daniel to hear that? Like as soon as you started praying, I I was sent to come to you right away because you are greatly loved. Like, oh man, I think if I was Daniel, I'd have been just like, okay, I don't need to hear anymore. (laughs) We're done, we're done. I'm good, I'll stay in Babylon another 70 years. Then he says this thing though, he says, consider and understand the vision. He's about to tell him something, but before he tells it, he slows him down and says, but consider and understand. Give understanding, give consideration. Because listen, folks, as we peer, we're getting down to ground zero here. As we peer into the next few verses, we need to understand that Gabriel is not interested in bringing Daniel confusing words he can't understand. But for the grace of God, that's what I'm about to do. I'm about to bring you confusing words that you can't understand. But by God's grace, that will be something that he will allow me not to do. Okay? But my point is, God is not asking us this morning to blow this off. In other words, if God's going to bring him something to be handled with care in response to this heart pouring out of Daniel in response to God's covenant promise to his people. It's going to be something weighty. It's going to be something tremendously grave, grave, meaning it, it will be a big deal and it's to be handled with care. It's not to be despised. It's not to be dismissed. It's to be, as Gabriel says, considered well and understand. And this is the angel Gabriel, just in case you're not aware. This is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel's next assignment that we know about, right? is gonna be really important. He's gonna go to a man named uh, uh, John the Baptist's father. His name is Zechariah. And he's gonna go to a young lady in a little town 
called Mary. He's going to tell them some things as well. But this is a little preview of Gabriel we get in Daniel. The only other time I think he appears is in this book. So he tells Daniel, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay, so that's our job right now is to consider this and understand. It's what Gabriel wanted Daniel to do. It's what he wants us to do. So stay awake. Get the pinch you need if you need it right now. Just tell somebody. Okay, because here it comes. This is, and, and, and another thing about it, it's not an easy thing to understand. You have to take some consideration of it, right? So he's trying to prepare him. So here it is. 70, this is Gabriel's word. 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. (laughs) Seventy-sevens has been decreed. God is decreeing. He's giving you seventy-sevens to do all these things. Did you see that list? Next slide. Look at that list. This is what God is giving Israel, Judah. He's given them 77s to, to have these things happen. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Is that a big deal? Like, what's left? <laughs> what's left for a people of God to do, but, in, but to deal with these things? Like, that's it. That's the whole program. God's like, Daniel, I'm not messing around. 77s to get the job done. The job. Close the sale between me and you for good. 77s. I can't go through all these exhaustively, but, but I, I just want you to note here that this is a comprehensive salvific program that God is giving to Daniel concerning Israel, Jerusalem, and his people. Okay, it has massive implications for all the Gentiles, but that's not what he's talking about right here. He's talking about Judah and Daniel and Israel. If God's gonna bring a Messiah, let me just ask you a spoiler question. If God's gonna bring a Messiah... Do you, who's going to crush Satan under his foot and rule the earth with righteousness forever. Do you think it has anything to do with these, these bullet points here? <laughs> it's going to concern his work at all? I think so. Okay, so what's this deal? 77s. 77s. Gabriel lets Daniel know that God has a calendar. Not just for the end of the 70 years that he's just gone through to get back to the land, but for 70 times 7 to accomplish what sounds like the full perfection of God's kingdom on earth. Now, I believe, as does most everyone I've ever studied my whole life, from being a Catholic as a kid to a Protestant today, that these 77s are 70 groups of seven years. Many translations translate it 70 weeks, weeks of years. But the, the Jewish term, and I can't remember, Shabua. It, it sounds very much like Sabbat. It just means seven. It just means a grouping of seven. The first times it's, it's used, that word in the Bible, is in Genesis when, uh, when Laban makes Jacob work for how many years to get his first bride, uh, Rachel? 
seven years. It's the same word used here, okay? So uh, there's other reasons why we can tell that this is seven years, but I don't want to belabor that. Please, I can tell you more reasons later. I hope you can trust me here along with every theologian I've ever read. But anyway, there's probably some theologians out there who disagree, but this is the deal. I believe it's saying 490 years, broken up into 77-year periods, and another evidence for this is this is perfectly symmetrical with what? The 490 years of Sabbaths neglected. So it's, all these numbers are in Daniel's head already. 70, 497, they're all swimming in his head. And it's another 490 years for Judah, Israel. Now Gabriel elaborates on this and we're gonna keep getting rigorous. And just as a little help, helper, this stuff that we're talking about is not some like extraneous wing of Christianity, radical end times teaching stuff. I'm not going to go into the end times aspects of this today. I'll just, that's another spoiler alert. But, but I will tell you that what we'll talk about today is, was, was uh, suitable fare for Calvin, for Luther, for Wycliffe, for Jonathan Edwards, for Charles Spurgeon. They put their hands on all the verses we're going to talk about today. Normal, really good, historical Christian theologians. This isn't weird Christianity. It's just not talked about enough, which I don't understand why. But, but they all talked about it and dealt with it. So Gabriel says this in verse 25, after he tells him we got a program of 490 years or 77s, he says, listen to this, verse 25. This is this is the, 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 this is the very center of this message that I'm trying to bring today. This verse, verse 25, is the core. Listen to this. So you are to know and discern, and we are to know and discern by God's grace, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. This is the part of the prophecy I really want us to focus on this morning. There's going to be a decree. Some lawgiver is going to give a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And from that starting point, Gabriel says there will be seven and 62 seven-year periods. What's seven plus 62? Look, I did it for you. <laughs> 69. How many total se sevens do we have? total. No, no not, not up there, but in total. 70. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, it's totally like algebra, right? You're like, 70? You know, I'm like, yeah. Okay, there's 70. So he's dealing with every one of them, but, but one, right? 69 sevens. Gabriel says, 69 sevens until what happens? Until what happens? Messiah comes. What? I'm sorry to be all like dr dramatic, but I mean, that's, that, if that's true, that's, that's helpful for whether or not Christianity is true and this is really God. Gabriel declares a, a 483 year period. That's what 69 sevens equals. 483 years. 
go to the next slide, please, Brando. Thank you, slide 30. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 69 sevens, or how many years? 483 years. So there is a 483-year period, according to Gabriel, between the decree, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the revealing of the Messiah. Guys, this is not the New Testament. This is not a Christian Bible book. This is the Jewish Old Testament. Of course, Christians believe this. This is the Jewish scriptures. You will find this in Jewish Bibles that stop at uh, Malachi, okay? That stop at the end of the Old Testament and that reject Jesus, you will find these words, okay? 483-year period between the decree to repeal Jerusalem and the revealing of the Messiah, we have to ask an important question here, okay, before we do the, the nitty-gritty math. What kind of year are we talking about, okay? I ask that for a specific reason. Because if you look at the language in Daniel, and you look at the language in Genesis, and you look at the language in Revelation, they have something in common, and it's called a lunar year, a prophetic lunar year. Okay? Um, Because Daniel did not use a 365-day calendar. It's not as if God didn't know that years were actually 365.245678. God knew that, but he's speaking to Daniel in a language that Daniel understands, in a prophetic language the people will understand. And the Jews used a variable calendar that oriented months around the moon cycle. Some of them were 30 days, some of them were 28 days. But the ancient kingdoms including the one Daniel was in, Babylon, including Persia that took it over, and Egypt and India and Assyria and Babylon, as well as the calendar in Genesis used by Moses as he wrote about Noah and the calendar in, in Revelation used by John. It's a 300, and there's a lot of evidence, it's a 360-day calendar, 12 months, 30 days apiece. It's often called a lunar calendar. It's not the only kind of lunar calendar out there, but it's an ancient classic calendar. Most cultures would make adjustments along the way, but 30-day months were the default. And this is the way months were counted. Again, in Genesis 8, where uh, five months is equal to five times 30 days, 150 days. It appears this way in Revelation 11, 12, and 13, where 42 months are not counted as we would count 42 months, but as 30-day months leading up to 1,260 days. I, I could go deeper into this, but I fear that your eyelids will close. So I'm going I'm to just put it there. That's slide 31. What kind of year? Brando, you're doing awesome. You know, by the way, this is the first message I've ever given where I have the slides up here with me too, just so I can help you guys keep track because I know this is a lot. Um, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying like, I know it's a lot, okay? So the years are, I'm alleging, 360-day years. They're lunar calendars, okay? <clears throat> and this, this whole thing will work with solar calendars, and I, I, I can tell you about that another time. But I'm going with the internal evidence that's in Daniel, and the internal evidence that's in Genesis and the internal evidence that's in Revelation about what kind of prophetic year we're talking about, okay? And I'm alleging, along with many, many others, it's a 360-day year uh, prophetic calendar, okay? So, 
32, we have to ask another question. God says he's going to bring the Messiah, and the starting point is a decree to rebuild the city. So now we gotta, if we're going to get to 483 years of these 69 weeks, we've got to have a starting point, right? We've got to have a starting point. What's the starting point? Are you guys with me? If you're just like super lost and you don't want to be, can you raise your hand real quick? I'm looking. I'm looking. Please speak forever now or hold your peace. I mean, I'll ask in another 60 seconds, but okay. So what decree? Well, Gabriel says it's a decree to rebuild what? Jerusalem. Okay, there are a couple of degrees, decrees to rebuild the temple. But there's only one decree that we understand was given to rebuild the city. And that's in Nehemiah 2, 5 through 8, where the man is given permission to rebuild the city. And that, there's a date for that in Nehemiah 2, 5, 8. Wouldn't you know, there's a specific day given. Nehemiah records, it's the month of Nisan 445, Nisan 1. We're gonna, he doesn't give the day of the month. He gives exactly when it is, though, in terms of the month. It's in the month of Nisan. So if we take Nisan 1 and we just start with that month, it corresponds to March 5th, 445 B.C. That's the decree to rebuild the city given Nehemiah 2, 5 through 8. Best we can see is it's March 5th, 445 B.C., That's a start date to rebuild. Now, we take 483 ancient lunar years, okay? And we get to, look at the bottom, March 4th, 440, it should say, I'm sorry, it should say 444 BC. That's right on the slide. And we add 483 years, or if you want to get in the nitty gritty, 173 100,880 days. So we go from 445 March 5th on our calendar, corresponding to Nisan 1 on his calendar, Nehemiah's and Daniel's. We add 483 years, which is corresponds to the 69 groups of seven years. You guys still with me? And we express that in days, 173,880 days. Where do we land? Next slide. Very credibly, historically, through astronomical guides, this is very likely, very, very credibly the day of the triumphal entry, which we celebrate as Palm Sunday, which probably was a Monday. This is the day that Jesus, for the first time, comprehensively, publicly declares to Israel that he is the Messiah. To the day. He rides on a donkey. In Zechariah 9. The people chant Psalm 118. A messianic blessing for the Messiah. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a royal psalm for the king of Israel. 
the Pharisees rebuke Jesus and he rebukes them back saying, if the people don't cry out for me, the stones are going to cry out for me. He is not hiding anymore. On this day, he's not hiding. If you pay attention to the gospels, many days Jesus hides. He runs away from the stoners. He runs away from the people who want to declare him the Messiah and put him on the throne right away. He's not a coward. He knows the time. He knows what day he's going to present himself. He knows Daniel. He sees the city and he cries over it. And he says, essentially, if you had only known the day. He says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day. He doesn't say there, would that you had known me. I just find it provoking that he says, would that you have known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set, and now listen to this, this is important because we're going to come back to Daniel in a second for this. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, this is one calculation. There are several other ways to calculate this using solar years and another decree that's, it's not crazy to think that maybe this other decree worked. But I've studied this for a long time and, and this is, to me, the most credible way to, to honor the internal evidence and to honor the best data on calendars. And but the next part Verse 26, we go back to Daniel. The next part of this prophecy, it really closes the case for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And here, listen, here's why. Let's go to Daniel 9, 26. This is what Daniel says, what Gabriel says is gonna happen after the Messiah reveals himself. Listen, then after the 62 weeks, which finishes the full 69, because the seven came first, 62, after that 483 years and the Messiah reveals himself that we just brought to, to that date, we just brought it to, what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen? The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince or a prince, it's not a definite article there, the people of a prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. What did Jesus just say? Because you did not know the time of your desertation, your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you on every side, tear you down to the ground. What did Daniel say? He said, the Messiah will be cut off and the people of a prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city and the sanctuary hadn't even been rebuilt when Gabriel brings this message to Daniel. This is a miracle. This isn't the Christian Bible. I could go into all kinds, well, several reasons why we know this was written well before Christ came well before Jerusalem was destroyed. 
the oldness of the Aramaic, the evidence in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the point is that here Daniel is telling, Gabriel is telling Daniel, this Messiah that you're waiting for, he's going to be cut off. That means cut off. That word here is used, it can mean a violent death. Isaiah 53 tells us, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is 700 years before Christ. And for his generation, who considered that he was, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Isaiah, using a very similar phrase to Daniel, cut off. So the Messiah is cut off. He will have nothing. He's a Messiah without a throne in Jerusalem. He's a king without a nation following him. He's a ruler without the people acknowledging him. This is a prophecy for Israel. And to this day, they will not acknowledge their Messiah. I'm not bringing a curse on them. I'm just saying this is what's true. When it, with regard to Israel, with regard to Israel, Jesus is not right now embraced by them. He has, in, in a sense, Regarding the nation, ethnically, he doesn't have the throne functionally. We know he has the throne in heaven over all things and over all nations. But not where he's going to be eventually when they do acknowledge him. And then Gabriel tells us the people of a prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This happened in AD 70. Listen to this. We're almost done. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus came with all his troops and they laid siege to Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and they did not leave one stone upon another. They didn't leave one stone upon another. Josephus, who's not a Christian, a historian makes that point. Just like Jesus said, there was nothing left of the temple. The foundation wall was not part of the temple. Titus killed 1.1 million Jews. This is in AD 70. We're not talking about 2020 New York Metropolitan. That was an incredible Holocaust. So here we are. Here we are. However you calculate those first 69 sevens, after they are reached, three things happen according to Gabriel. The Messiah is cut off and he has no rule over his people. The city and the temple is destroyed. Three things. Messiah is cut off. The city is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And all of this Gabriel predicts before they're even rebuilt. So we can say very confidently that whoever the Messiah is, He had to have come to the Jewish nation and present himself according to the Jewish scriptures about 500 or so years after Gabriel gives this message to Daniel. And then after he presents himself, after about 500 years, he must be rejected. And then after he is rejected, the city and the temple, both not yet rebuilt at the time of Gabriel's words, have to be destroyed again, which happened at AD 70. Can you think of anybody in world history that came maybe to the Jewish people around AD 30, presented himself as the Messiah, was killed, and then that was soon followed by the destruction of the city and the temple around AD 70? Can you think of anyone? I don't mean to be glib, but... Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
did all of that. And all that happened after he was cut off. By 70 AD, according to the Gabriel, the Messiah had to have come and been cut off. Again, this is the Jewish scriptures. Christians didn't write this in. The last part I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave for another time, the, the final seventh year, is the most controversial among Bible-believing Christians. It, it divides, not with animosity, it doesn't divide, Lord willing, it shouldn't, but it, 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 there are different conceptions of what that 70th week means for different Christians. I can tell you privately my best guess, but I hold it loosely um, because I think there are a couple of different credible interpretations, at least at the level that I've studied it. So I'm, I'm gonna hold off on that final 70. But I, I just wanna leave us with a few application points. I don't know like, what more God could do to make clear to anyone who wants to know and can get to a Bible that this is the Messiah and that the stakes are incredibly grave And I think the first application that I can think of here is just, let's re- remember, let's more deeply embrace the time of our visitation for we know the time of our visitation. We have been told and our eyes are open to it. So I just wanna say to you again, Jesus Christ is your Messiah. If you will have him, God has fought and striven to make objectively clear through prophecy after prophecy and maybe most astonishingly today that he is the Messiah who he has brought to the world. He is the Messiah that Judah needed. He is the Messiah that Daniel needed. He is the Messiah that you and I need. And God was so passionate about us knowing that he has done pretty much everything he can to tell us who that Messiah will be in a credible way long before it happens because he is the God who knows the end from the beginning. And we're gonna see next week another astonishing picture in Isaiah of the Messiah. But, 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 but I just pray that you can leave here in awe and that more deeply than you walked in, you can say, oh my goodness, there is a God He has a son. His name is Jesus. I need him. My neighbors need him. My family needs him. And and I need to be used by him to to bring them to him. And I need to follow him each day because he is the Messiah. He is God's anointed. There is no other. And he's real. It's really true. Maybe because I'm such a, a powerful doubter, I just get, uh, I get to enjoy being amazed by this again. And I get to say in my soul, it's really true. It's really true. I'm alive. I exist and I have a creator and he wants to know me and he has sent his son to make me know him. And he's my Messiah. And I know his name. I'm not random. I'm not some anonymous collection of cells and molecules. I'm I'm made in God's image to be reconciled to him through the Messiah right here. I mean, what a gift. We should just walk around in awe all the time 
I don't mean to guilt you. I just mean like, Lord, please let it be in our hearts that we're awestruck at this. And let's go to three because I really want to try to end here. He, he, his word is reliable. God's word is reliable. His, this is a miracle, this thing. It's a miracle. Treasure this book. It's the only book like it in the world. It's, it's written supernaturally. It's living and active. It, James tells us it saves your soul when you pay attention to it and you fight to pay attention to it. And listen, I know just like you, it is not always easy to pay attention to this. It is hard. It, our flesh, the enemy, life, our goals, all want to squeeze away the time we should give to this and nourish our souls on it. There's just more instant gratification stuff. It's easier than, than getting into this book. But this word is reliable. And it tells us that our Messiah has atoned for our wickedness already. That he was cut off for our struggles, for our failures. That, that he has brought everlasting righteousness to us. So even though we struggle, even though we sin, we can keep coming back to him again and again because it's what this word tells us. Passages like this today should not just make us excited about the end times or fulfilled messianic prophecy. They should make us excited that the, this astonishing word in Daniel that's true, the true nature of it, it's just like the, uh, the word in Hebrews 4. That's not just, it's not quite as flashy, but it's, it's just as true that every day you need grace and mercy to keep following your Messiah. And if you will believe him for it, Every day, he will give you grace and mercy. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. You have a sympathetic high priest, Messiah, who loves you and has compassion for you in your struggles. And if you will believe him for it, he will give you grace and mercy every day. That's just as rock solid as Daniel 9 shows itself to be so rock solid. And he's coming back. He's coming back. He said he was coming the first time. He said he wouldn't stay. He said he would be cut off. And he was. And he said he is coming back. And he is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.